again are in Ezekiel chapter 40. I'll be reading verse 4. Please stand with me out of honor to God and His Word as we read, looking this morning at the temple. The temple. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee. For to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. Thank you. May be seated. By way of introduction, I want you to know that today's message is more informational than it is devotional. It's more informational than devotional. And if you were to read Ezekiel chapter 40 through the end of the book, chapter 48, you would find out there's all kinds of details, all kinds of measurements, all kinds of numbers. If you like numbers, you will love the end of the book of Ezekiel. So today's message, again, is going to be more informational than devotional. But we will endeavor to explain the three temples of biblical history, emphasizing their personal and prophetic importance. Since we're talking about a temple, though, I want to tell you a story. There was a friend of the abbot of a monastery who went to visit his friend that was the abbot. And the abbot invited him to stay at the temple for an evening meal. Now the monks eat in silence, and they were eating until one monk stood up and said, Sixteen! And the other monks all laughed and then went back to eating their meals in silence. A few minutes later, another monk stood up and said, Thirty-two! At which point all the monks collapsed into laughter and the abbot laughed so hard he had tears running down his cheek. When everyone was eating again, the visitor says to the abbot, I don't understand what's going on here. How is it that somebody says a number and everybody busts out laughing? The abbot explained, we all love jokes, but we're a closed community here. And so the jokes are well known by everybody, so to save time, we wrote the jokes down and gave each one of them a number, so if one of us wants to tell a joke, we just say the number and everybody remembers. Well, the visitor said, could I try? And the abbot said, sure, that'd be fine. So the visitor stands up while everybody's eating in silence. He says, 24! Nothing. He thought, well, maybe nobody heard me. And so again he says louder, 24! All the monks just look at him in silence and go back to eating their meal. So the man sits down. He asks the abbot, I don't understand. Why did nobody laugh when I said 24? Well, the abbot explained, some people could tell a joke, some people can. (laughs) Let's look this morning at the temple. First of all, I want us to look at the temple past. The temple past. Now, God met with his people initially in the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was a tent made to God's specifications as given to Moses. And as Israel traveled through the wilderness for those 40 years, it was portable to travel with them. That's how a tent works. You set a tent in, you live in it for a while, take the tent down, move on. Same was true with worshiping God. They'd set up a tent, they'd worship God when it was time to move, take the tent down, go on. But even once Israel was established as a nation under King Saul and David, Israel still met with God in a tabernacle. But you probably know that David proposed building a permanent house or a permanent temple for God. And even though David proposed it, God actually rejected David's proposal because David had been a man of war. We can read about that here in 1 Chronicles 28.3. It says, But God said to me, You shall not build a house for my name because you've been a man of war and you've shed blood. God did, however, promise David two very important things. The first thing God promised David, he said, I'm not going to let you make my house, but I'm going to build you a house. 
Now, he wasn't talking about building David a brick-and-mortar house. He was talking about David's line, David's lineage, David's dynasty. And if you notice here that last verse of this top paragraph, it says, Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And so God says, You can't build my temple, but let me make you two promises. Number one, I'm going to build your house. And number two, your son will build my temple. That's here in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So already we learned something here. And that is that while we can worship God anywhere and anytime, God also enjoys intentional, formal worship. Again, you can worship God driving down the road. You can worship God walking through the woods. You can worship God sitting in your easy chair at home. And that's fine. And God accepts that worship. But what I'm telling you is God also enjoys intentional, formal worship like what we do here Sunday after Sunday, gathering together, singing and fellowshipping and hearing the word and all of that. God enjoys both the formal and the informal. But what we see in the tabernacle and later on in the temple is God does enjoy intentional, formal worship. So... The temple passed. We know that it initially was the tabernacle, but let's look at the first temple. The first temple's construction, it was by David's son Solomon. The location, it was located in Jerusalem, built on Mount Moriah, where Abraham sacrificed his only son. You might remember from Genesis 22, God tells Abraham, sacrifice your son, your only son, to me. Now, Abraham didn't follow through with it, didn't have to follow through with the sacrifice, but he was willing to. This same spot upon which Abraham sacrificed his son Isaac, That was Mount Moriah. That's where the first temple was built. And it was later known as Calvary, where God the Father sacrificed His only Son. There was a recognition the day that that first temple was built, and it was dedicated, there was a recognition. That was this, that it was a very beautiful temple. It was a very large temple, but the recognition was this temple could not contain God. Look here what what Solomon said as he's dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8.27, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I built. And then there was the actual dedication of this first temple. And when it was dedicated, it was inhabited by the glory of God, later called the Shekinah glory of God. But once this temple, this first temple was built, it was inhabited by the glory of God. We learn about that in 2 Chronicles 7 too. It says the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. What is the glory of God? What is the Shekinah? It is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. You might remember when the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness. There was the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by the day. That's the glory of God. The visible manifestation of the glory of God. And then when the tabernacle was completed, God's glory came in and there. Uh, The Shekinah, again, the visible manifestation of the presence of God. And then the first temple is built. The Shekinah, the visible presence or visible manifestation of the presence of God. When Solomon dedicated this first temple, he offered extravagant sacrifices. In fact, these sacrifices were so extravagant that there are scholars today that say, you know what, the Bible just can't be trusted. There is no way that anybody made this kind of sacrifice to dedicate the temple. Let me read it to you from 2 Chronicles 7 
And verse 5 it says, And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. You know what the Bible says? How many oxen and sheep? And I believe what the Bible says. Them scholars, whoever they can be, they can believe whatever they want to believe. But there was extravagant sacrifices made the day that the first temple was dedicated. And at that first temple, when it was dedicated, God made this very famous promise. You've heard it before. Second Chronicles 7:14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Well, Judah believed that God's temple protected them no matter what. The people were confident that nothing could hurt them because the temple was there. They said, this is the temple. This is God's house. This is where God dwells. And so it really doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how we behave. We've got the temple. And God is in there. We are safe. We are protected. Even the priests of the day assured the people that the presence of the temple was proof of God's pleasure. Don't worry about your behavior. Don't worry about offending God. Look down the street. See the temple? He loves us. Judah believed that they were safe regardless of their behavior. And you know why? Because Judah knew the temple of the Lord. They didn't know the Lord of the temple. They knew the temple of the Lord. It was right down the street. They could see it. They knew the temple of the Lord. They didn't know the Lord of the temple. People today act like that still. Counting on things other than a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. To think that they're pleasing to God. There are people that would say, you know, it doesn't matter how I behave. It doesn't matter whether I read my Bible and pray. It doesn't matter whether I go to church. You know why? Because I was baptized. That was years ago and that preacher dunked me under the water. And I know because I've been baptized, I'm good with God. Others would say, it doesn't matter how I behave. It doesn't matter whether I pray or read the Bible. Because you know why? I'm a member of this church. And I'm not only a member of this church, I've been a member of this church since it was founded. Look it up on the records. Others would say, well, I'm not a member of the church, but I'm good with God because I come to church. You can see me there in a pew every Sunday. Doesn't matter how I behave. Doesn't matter whether I pray or read the Bible. I go to church. I'm good. Others would say, you know what? I don't, it doesn't matter how I I behave. Doesn't matter whether I pray or read the Bible. You know why? Because I give a lot of money to the church. Our treasure is not allowed to tell you. But if she could, she would just show you how much I give and you'd be amazed. You'd be impressed. So I know I'm good with God because, you know, I'm basically buying my way to his favor. Yet others would say, you know, it doesn't matter how I behave. It doesn't matter whether I pray or read the Bible. Those things don't matter because I serve in the church. It doesn't matter. You name the committee, I'm on the committee. It doesn't matter what needs to be done. I'm there doing it. This is the same thing of these people when they looked down the street and saw the temple and said, look, we're good with God. It doesn't matter how we behave. It doesn't matter the things we do. It doesn't matter how we conduct our lives because the temple is here. And because the temple is here, God is here, and we are safe. Well, that very temple was destroyed by Babylon in 586 B.C., just as Jeremiah had prophesied it would. Because Jeremiah said, you know what? It does matter how you behave. It does matter that you have a relationship with God. 
this temple means nothing to God without your worship, without your being right with him. He said, this temple is going to be destroyed, and it was, 586 B.C. Having no temple for worship, the Jewish synagogue developed. And you might say, well, who cares? We're not Jewish. <laughs> We're actually more Jewish than you may realize. Because Christian church services today are based on synagogue services from way back then. Basically, when folks would go to synagogue, they would fellowship together, they would pray together, they would sing songs together, they would hear a homily, a sermon together. Same thing we're doing today. That was the first temple. Built by Solomon, destroyed by Babylon, because the people said, you know what? doesn't matter how we behave. We've got the temple. They went around. You can read in Jeremiah 7, 4. They said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Like I said, they knew the temple of the Lord. They didn't know the Lord of the temple. But let's move to the second temple. Still looking at the temple past, the second temple. After an arduous captivity, Persian king Cyrus decreed that the Jews could return home and rebuild their temple. That's in Ezra chapter 1. And this was a fulfillment, actually, of Jeremiah's prophecy. Look here in Jeremiah 29.10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years are accomplished in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. The captives return and they rebuild the temple. The second temple was dedicated at its foundation. That's in Ezra chapter 3. And it was dedicated at its completion 20 years later in Ezra chapter 6. And God promised to fill this new temple with his glory. This comes from the prophet Haggai. Look what he says in Haggai 2.7. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now let's fast forward to King Herod. King Herod expanded and enhanced this second temple. Some 500 years later, this was the temple that Jesus visited. This was the temple Jesus visited when he was 40 days old, when he's being dedicated in Luke chapter 2 and verse 22. This is the temple that Jesus visited when he was 12 years old in Luke chapter 2 and verse 46, where he's in the temple and he's discussing things with the doctors of the law. This is the temple that Jesus visited when he overthrew the money changers and said, you've made this place a den of thieves. The Shekinah glory never entered this new temple, but Jesus did. Now remember, prophet Haggai said, you build this thing, I'll fill it with my glory. It got built. The glory never showed up. Or did it? While the Shekinah never visited this new temple, Jesus did. Fulfilling God's promise to fill with his glory, for God did not come as a cloud, he came as the Christ. And he literally, physically filled that temple just as had been promised to the prophet Haggai. By the way, this was also the temple in which the veil was torn the moment Jesus died on the cross. You know, there was this, this veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, sometimes called the holy of holies. This is where they believed that God actually dwelt, physically dwelt there in the holy of holies. And nobody could go in there except for one person, the chief priest or the high priest, only one day of year on the day of atonement. He did on the day that Jesus died on the cross. That veil was rent from the top to the bottom, saying God is now accessible to anyone by grace through faith in Christ. Sadly, Herod's temple 
was destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. And so as we look at the temple past, we see the first temple built by Solomon, destroyed by Babylon, 586. We see the second temple rebuilt by Ezra in the time of Ezra, destroyed much later on by Rome in 70 AD. That's the temple past. Secondly, I want us to look at the temple present. The Wailing Wall is all the remains of that second temple. Devout Jews and others gather here to pray daily, slipping their written prayer request into the wall. Presidents and other international dignitaries often pray here at the Wailing Wall. But this is all that is left of that second temple. But you see, God promised he would not only be with us, God promised that he would be in us. And our bodies become his temple. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. He says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? And so God says, I'm not only going to be with you, I'm going to be in you. And our bodies become his temple. He indwells us the very moment we're saved, the moment we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, believing Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, that he was buried for our sins and rose again the third day. At that very moment, he comes to live inside of us and we become his temple. God's people individually are the temple of God. Now, I recently shared this, I think twice, but I'm going to share it again. There are two words in Greek that are translated in English, temple. The first word is hieron. And as this picture depicts here, hieron refers uh, to the temple area, the holy place, the courtyard, kind of the whole thing. And then the second word translated temple from the uh, Greek into English is naos, which refers to the holy of holies, the place where God dwells. In 1 Corinthians 6.19 where Paul says, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't use the word hieron referring to the whole area. He uses the Greek word naos. He says, your body is the very holy of holies of Almighty God. So what's the bottom line? My friends, you don't go to church. You are the church. Now, I know we call this a church building and we, we're going to church this Sunday or whatever. But really, when you look at it, you don't go to church. You are the church. You are the very temple of Almighty God. Your body is His holy of holies. And because of that, what you wouldn't do in church, don't do anywhere. Because you are the church. Would you cuss in church? Would you steal in church? Would you lie in church? Would you smoke in church? Would you drink in church? Of course not. You are the church. What you wouldn't do in the church, don't do anywhere. You are the church. So that's the temple present. But let's get to our text now and look finally at the temple future. Ezekiel foresees a future temple. Now, this is chapter 40 through the end of the book, chapter 48. We're not going to cover all that. But the fact of the matter is Ezekiel sees a future temple. And, of course, this would be a great encouragement to his readers, giving them great hope that even though these first two temples haven't worked out, there's another one coming. Now, I will tell you that some think Ezekiel's temple description is symbolic. But chapters of detailed measurements indicate this is a literal structure. Let me just give you an example. Chapter 40, look in verse 6. There's all measurements, all numbers. 
Then came he to the gate which looks toward the east and went up the stairs thereof and measured the threshold of the gate which was one reed broad and the other threshold of the gate which was one reed broad. How about chapter 41 and verse 1? Afterwards he brought me to the temple and measured the post six cubits broad on one side, six cubits broad on the other, which was the breadth of the tabernacle. How about chapter 42 and verse 8? For the length of the chambers that were in the utter court was 50 cubits and lo, before the temple were 100 cubits. How about chapter 43 and verse 16? And the altar shall be 12 cubits long, 12 broad, square in the four squares thereof. How about chapter 45 and verse 2? Of this there shall be for the sanctuary 500 in length with 500 in breadth, square round about and 50 cubits round about for the suburbs thereof. Chapter 46 and verse 22 says there, In the four corners of the court were courts joined of 40 cubits long, 30 broad. These four corners were of one measure. Do you get the point? And if you go home and read this, it's numbers and numbers and measures and measures over and over and over. I'm not going to belabor the point. What I'm telling you is this is not symbolic. Chapter after chapter of detailed measurements indicate this is a literal structure yet to be built. And if the temple is not built according to these specifications, God's word is not faithful. That's how important this is. So some think Ezekiel's temple description is symbolic. Still others say the promise was actually conditional and when the conditions weren't met, the temple was not built. Look here at Ezekiel 43.11. Look at the second word. And if they be ashamed of all they have done, show them the form of the house, the fashion thereof, the goings out thereof, the comings in thereof, all the forms thereof, all the ordinances thereof, all the forms thereof, all the laws thereof. Write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof and all the ordinances thereof to do them. If. They're ashamed. If the case was they were not ashamed, then the promise goes away. But when you read through Ezekiel, you find out that Ezekiel ensures that the temple will be rebuilt, the temple will be restocked, and the temple will be re-inhabited. The temple will be, not might be, the temple will be rebuilt, it will be restocked, it will be re-inhabited. It'll be restocked with priests and Levites and sacrifices. It'll be re-inhabited with God's glory. Ezekiel earlier witnessed God's glory leaving the temple before it was destroyed in 586. This is in chapter 11 and verse 23. But Ezekiel, when he sees this new temple, he witnesses God's glory returning to it. Look here at Ezekiel 43, 4. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. In chapter 11, when Ezekiel saw the glory leave, it left to the east. When he saw the glory come back, it comes back from the east. Ezekiel ensures us this is not a symbolic description. This is not a conditional description. God's temple will be rebuilt, restocked, and re-inhabited by the very glory of God. I want you to know today that a third temple is being planned for Jerusalem, even now. A third temple is being planned for Jerusalem, built to the same specifications as the first temple, the temple proper, that is. Now, the surrounding area and structures, those will be expanded in this new temple, but the temple itself, the holy place, holy of holies, all of that, will be built to the same specifications as the first temple. It'll be furnished with the same equipment as the first temple. It'll restart the same sacrifices of the first temple. And this new temple will be built on the same spot 
as the first temple. The problem is the Dome of the Rock is currently there right now. You've probably seen pictures of this place. The Dome of the Rock is a Muslim holy site covering the rock from which Muhammad supposedly ascended into heaven. And I am telling you what, the Muslims will not give up this piece of real estate no matter what. Only a miracle will permit the temple to be rebuilt here. And guess what? A miracle will take place. Let's get real. What good is a temple and sacrifices when God's people are the temple? Remember I just talked about that? Why do you need to rebuild a temple when we are the temple? And why do you need sacrifices when God's Son is the final sacrifice? Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Why do you need a temple when we are the temple? Why do you need sacrifices when Jesus already did that? One theory is that the Jews will get the temple up and running and then realize this is not what pleases God. Another theory proposes that the sacrifices will be memorial in nature, like the Lord's Supper. You know, occasionally we have the bread and the juice, we pass that on. We're not re-sacrificing Jesus Christ. It's just a memorial, a reminder, and these animal sacrifices that will be restarted just serve as a memorial to what Jesus already did. I don't care which one of those you want to believe, because either way, the temple will be rebuilt. And if it's not rebuilt, God's word is not reliable. Here's the thing. Zechariah prophesied that one day Israel will realize that they pierced or crucified their Messiah. The day is coming when Israel will realize that. Look at Zechariah 12:10. And I will pour upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. By God's grace, Israel will recognize Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior. And you read Romans chapter 11, you will find out that Israel will come to faith in Christ. Now, we don't know exactly when this is going to happen. But we do know it will occur after the salvation of the Gentiles. People like me is complete. Look what Paul writes here in Romans 11, beginning in verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. I want you to know that Israel's salvation is definitely an end-time event. Has Israel come to faith yet? No. Are we in the end times? Well, the writers of the Scripture said we are in the last days. We've been in the end times for a long time. But when Israel starts getting saved for real, you'll know it's here. Let me ask you a couple questions. Because that first temple really doesn't matter to us. And the second temple really doesn't matter to us. As, as Bible students it does. But I mean it really doesn't affect us. And that future temple that really doesn't apply to us. At least not now. It's not built. But I have a couple questions that do apply to us from this message. Number one. Have you received God's son as your personal sacrifice? 
Remember, I mentioned what good is a temple, what good are sacrifices when Jesus already did that. And while it is true that Jesus did die on the cross and rise again, if you've not received him as your personal Savior, it does you no good. So question number one, have you received God's Son as your personal sacrifice? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, that Jesus was buried for your sins, and that Jesus rose again the third day for you? Do you believe that? If you do, are you conducting your life as the temple of God? Let me put it another way. Are you living like God lives in you? Are you living like God lives in you? So you can do what you want to do with the measurements. You can do what you want to do with the history of the first temple, the second temple, that future third temple. Do what you want to with that. But I want you to really consider these questions. Have you received God's Son as your personal sacrifice? And if so, are you living like God lives in you? Because you and I, we are the temple of Almighty God. And if God is living in us, it ought to be obvious to everyone that he's living in us. So we've seen the temple past. We see the temple present. We are the temple of God. He lives within us. And we see the temple future. There is a third temple yet to be built. Right where the first one was built. We don't know when that's going to happen. It really doesn't specifically matter to us today. What matters is that each one of us here has received Christ as our personal Savior and that we are living like God lives in us because he does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this lesson. And even though it was more informational than devotional, there's plenty of devotion in it too. But it all boils down to this. Folks need to be saved. Need to receive Christ as personal Savior, believing He died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. And having received Christ as Savior, we need to live like it. We need to live like you live in us because you do. Bless this invitation. Change hearts and lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.